0: Right, well, if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab it and make your way to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, that's where we're going to be for a little while today. And by a little while, I mean get comfortable. We're going to be here for a little while. Uh, Ten Commandments in one day. And so we've got a lot to do. Uh, that's on page 61 in the hardback black Bibles that are around you. Grab that if you don't have a Bible with you, because we're going to read. And I'd love for you to see it and be able to track along with us while you're getting there. Um, a couple of years ago, there was an interview that Stephen Colbert did with a uh, someone who with a congressman who had co-sponsored a bill, wanting to put the Ten Commandments on courthouses and in historic places and whatnot. And so he's doing this interview with the guy and he's explaining why he thinks that would be a good idea, and talking about history and you know how in the U.S. a lot of our walls are framed based upon you know the Ten Commandments and that sort of thing. And so he's asking him, he's going along with the interview, doing the interview. And towards the end of the interview, you know, it's coming to a close, and, and he just kind of pauses and asks the guy, so what are the commandments? And the guy hemmed and hawed for a couple minutes, and he, you know, maybe got out three or four, and Colbert helped him with the rest. Uh, total setup job. But the, the whole point is, if we're honest, we're probably a bit like that, that guy. We probably can rattle off several Uh, But we probably need a little bit of help from someone with the others. And so this morning, as we look at this, I do certainly hope that we walk out of here with a better, like, knowledge of the Ten Commandments, like, as far as just knowing them and being able to state them, regurgitate them, or whatever. But even if you can regurgitate them, the question we need to kind of ask ourselves is, like, do we follow them? Do they make an impact on our lives? Because they are God's, like, path of life. It is His divine guide for how He calls us to live. And so this morning, what I want to do is remind us of that and and, and really just kind of talk about uh, the law's purpose, the law's structure, the law's substance, the law's seriousness, and then one final one at the end. And so that's kind of where we're going to go. I already gave you the first four notes if you wrote it down. But to begin with, let's just read this. Exodus chapter 20. Verses 1 through 21, remembering that the Lord has given these to us not as a means of salvation. We are saved by faith, not by works. But we are called to live these out as an act of worship for the glory of God and for the good of our own souls. So would you join me in reading? And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And so that's how the Ten Commandments, okay, the beginning of the law was handed down. It was spoken, right? It's not Charlton Heston the way you probably have it memorized in your head. It was spoken. The people actually heard it. Later he goes and gets the tablets and, and breaks them and then goes and gets some more, but it was first just spoken. And so just kind of, but like trying to understand the wall, a little bit of a review from last week, let me just remind us of the wall's purpose, okay? So number one in your notes, the wall's purpose, and there's really three, three purposes of the wall. The first one is to teach us about the character of God. And so when you look at the Ten Commandments and all the rest of the law, wall, 613 walls, when you look at all of that, they all highlight an attribute of God and teach us about His character tell us what he is like. So that's one purpose of the wall, to teach us about God. A second purpose of the wall is to serve as, as sort of like a, um, a CT ma- machine, like a diagnostic. And so we look at the wall Like a CT machine, it tells us, hey, you have a cancer. But the CT machine can do nothing to heal us of that cancer. It points us and says, hey, you've got a problem. You need a healer. The law is the same way. We look at the law. We analyze our lives. We see we cannot keep this. We fail to keep this. We need a Savior. And so it points us to Jesus. Jesus. Someone who has fulfilled the law. Like, that's what we need. We need someone who has fulfilled the law and someone who has atoned for our sin. And that's what the Messiah did. That's what Jesus did in His life, death, and resurrection. So the second purpose of the law is it's a diagnostic that points us to our need of a Savior. But then once we've come to salvation, Jesus points us right back to the law for how we are to grow, how we are to now live our lives. Like, what does a life of a Christian look like? It looks like someone who is seeking to live out the law. Not because they have to in order to earn salvation or merit, like, you know, uh, getting in good with God. That's not what it is. All of our getting in good with God is based upon what Jesus did. But this is how we're called to live for God's glory and our joy. And so there's just this lifelong circle of you know the law points us to the gospel our need of a savior and then the gospel points us back to the law of how to live our life and we fail at that again we need reminds us of our need of a savior so you should never grow out of reminders that you need a savior and not just that one time when you you know pledge to to trust Jesus for the first time and, and he becomes your Lord and Savior, like that's your whole life. You're saved one time, you repent daily, minutely. Law, gospel, law, gospel, law, gospel, law, gospel. And so those are the three main purposes of the law to show us the character of God, serve as a diagnostic for our souls, and then to point us like a divine guide. And that divine guide, like, it doesn't mean it's just going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's just going to be a gentle thing. I mean, I, like, just remind... My mom, like, told me a gazillion times, I love you. Like, every day, constantly remind me of this. But she also constantly reminded me, don't ever do that again. My dad taught me the value of hard work, and he taught me that not just by saying, hey, you should work hard, but by making me work hard. And there's constantly, throughout my life, just been people in my life who love me enough to point out uh no you 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 can't do that and that's the way the law and really all the scriptures work for us they constantly confront us and constantly point out where you know we believe that we're smarter than god because that's what sin is we think we're smarter than god we'll do our own thing I know better than you, God, how to run my life. You don't understand my circumstances. That may be good for everybody else, but I'm an asterisk in the Bible. And so the wall now for the believer has become the words of a friend, our Lord Jesus Christ, guiding us in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. The path of life. That's why David says in Psalm 16, you, made no, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. So, for the glory of God and our own good, the law is our divine guide. Those are the purposes. Now, let's chat a little bit about the structure before we actually get into it a little bit. I want to help you try to <clears throat> understand you know, ways you can think about the law. Because when I say law, I'm talking about the whole thing, all 613. But the Ten Commandments are the first ten, and they're kind of the, the, the summary, the big picture. And so in a lot of ways, you can kind of think about it, and this analogy will break down, but I'm going to go with it anyhow. You could think of it as kind of like the U.S. Constitution. And so like you have the U.S. Constitution, that is like the framework of our country. And then you've got all these gazillion other federal laws that are out there. And they are all supposed to be based off the Constitution, roll back to the Constitution, which is why when there's a question about a a law, it works its way up to the Supreme Court, and they look at it and and figure out, is this, like, I mean, what what do they use to judge? If it's constitutional, right? Does it fit the Constitution? So everything's to flow out of the Constitution. Well, that's kind of like the Ten Commandments. You have the Ten Commandments as a constitution, and then all the other laws, in Leviticus, and Numbers, you know, the ones that you get to in your Bible reading plan, and like, eh, yeah, if you're honest, right? They're important, but all those other ones are kind of like the federal laws. <clears throat> and they're written to a specific people at a specific time in a specific place. And so that's one way you can kind of think about it. It's like the Ten, the ten Commandments are kind of like the Constitution, and then all the other ones are these federal laws, and we're going to hit some of these federal laws next week. And it's in these federal laws, as you read through all that, that so many like objections to Christianity come up. This is where they all, people don't really question the Ten Commandments so much, but it's like, hey, um, you know, if you're going to say that homosexuality is a sin, then you need to not eat shellfish and you need to not wear clothes made out of two different fabrics. And on and on and on and on and on. And what that comes from is someone who doesn't have a clue what they're talking about, honestly, just conflating the timeless, eternal, moral law, Ten Commandments, like reflection of God's character, moral law, timeless, eternal, conflating that as equal to the temporary civil and ceremonial laws which ended when the Messiah came. They were always intended to end when the Messiah came. And so the fact that Jesus has come has changed things. He's brought a new covenant. But the moral law of God is eternal because it's a reflection of His character. And in fact, all the Ten Commandments, you can see every single one of them prior to them being stated here. I mean, you just, one example is the manna, right? You remember manna? Gather up a bunch on the sixth day. On the seventh day, you're not going to gather any. Like Sabbath, all of these. Why was, you know, uh, Cain, like Cain and Abel? You got murder. Like all through here, you can see all of these. The moral law of God is eternal. And so, again, one way you can think about it is like constitution, federal laws. You could also think about the Ten Commandments. Another way to kind of structure it and keep it in your, in your mind is think of it like, uh, big headings are like file cabinets. Each one is a file cabinet with a gazillion documents inside. And so they, you know, there's a lot more contained in each Ten Commandment than just the spe- specific thing that's stated. And we know this because Jesus told us this. He takes murder and says, "Hey, it's also anger." He takes adultery and says, "Hey, it's also lust." And so they serve as kind of like ten headings within which there's tons and tons and tons and tons of different things. So that's a different way. It's a file cabinet, tons of documents inside. And the Ten Commandments are like headings for all of the wall. But then just specifically, these ten, if we're going to try to, how can we kind of outline these ten? Well, Jesus does that for us. Again, Matthew chapter 22 that Chad read just a minute ago. He's asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so as we are going to see in just a minute, the first four of the commandments are about loving God. And the next six are about loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's how the commandments are structured. The first four are vertical. The next six are are horizontal. So that's the wall structure. A couple ways to think about it, all right? Let's get into the substance now. Number three, the wall is substance. And so we are just going to march through all 10 of these. Um, Obviously, I can't say everything that needs to be said on these. At some point, we'll come back and do a sermon series where we do one at a time. Uh, But we're going to try to hit some overviews real quick today. So the first one, you shall have no other gods before me. Now listen to me, God isn't worried about other gods because there are none, right? What he's talking to us about is like what we put in front of him and what we serve as gods. And so this is very much really just about the sins of omission, not giving him the glory he's due versus sins of commission. And so what he's getting after really is idolatry. And you're like, well, I don't have any idols at my house. Yeah, they're in your heart. Calvin said our hearts are like idol factories. Just constantly creating idols to worship that we think will satisfy us, we think will fulfill us. Only God can do that. And so for God's glory and our own good, he says, don't worship idols because they cannot bear the the weight of expectation and fulfillment that you put on them. They will crumble. And so for my glory and your good, don't do that. And we make idols out of anything. Materialism. Pleasure. Salaries. Grades. Sports. People. Family. Family time. You can make idols out of anything. Status. position, Clout. Politics. You can make idols out of anything. And none of the things I just named are bad. Some of them are really, really, really good, but... As I learned a long time ago, when you take a good thing and you let it become a God thing in your life, well, that's a bad thing. That's an idol. And so, are there idols in your life that you need to put away? What are they? God's contending for our joy. Don't forget that have no other gods before me. The second commandment is connected to the first. When the first one's more about internal, like what's in your heart. The second one's more about external, like how you worship. Very various aspects of our worship. I mean, even in churches you can tell a lot about a church by how they worship. Like whom is the worship aimed at? Is it aimed at people or is it aimed at God? Right? And then from a people standpoint, is it like just trying to be like cultures or just trying to you know, be some tradition? It's saying don't be spiritual without Christ. Don't worship things. Idolatry still. The third commandment, the, taking the word's name in vain. Most of us hear that and we automatically think, you know, like bad language. Whether that's out of excitement, OMG, right? Or anger, and so it's God with an expletive. And both of those, like, we should think that. That is not how we're to use God's name. We're not to use it as an expression for excitement or, you know, flabbergasted or angry or anything. God's name is holy. We are to revere His name. But those two things, that's just kind of scratching the surface. It is deeper than that. It's not just don't cuss with God's name. Or don't just say His name for no purpose. That's part of it. But deeper than that, the the idea of take, like take the Lord's name in vain, the word conveys also the sense of carry or bear. So don't bear the Lord's name in vain. And so if you are a Christian, you bear the name of Christ. If you bear the name of Christ, then you should live the way Christ has called you to do. And when you don't, when I don't, we are taking the Lord's name in vain. We are bearing His name in vain, which means every single time we sin, we also take the Lord's name in vain, and every single time we sin, we're violating the first commandment, which is to have no other gods before Him, because if we truly did that, we wouldn't do these other things. That's the third commandment. And so praise the Lord that Jesus has fulfilled the law perfectly for us, but brothers and sisters, let's strive to live for the glory of God and our own good. God is contending for us here. And the fourth commandment really shows us how He's contending. I mean, look at the grace that God gives us. He gives us a Sabbath day. Like the world is built on work, 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 produce, 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 produce. And the way the world is structured is, you know, just got cogs in a wheel, and I would just burn up, use up, work through, you know, this person until they are dried up and, and beaten. And then I'll replace them like an like a old appliance with someone new. And God says, that's not the way it's to work in my kingdom. Everybody gets a break, not just the rich, not just the powerful. Everybody gets a break. Like You need a Sabbath. You need a Sabbath. You need a day set aside for rest and worship. Those are together. And we're going to spend some time on this in detail in four weeks. And so I'm going to set it aside for today and we're going to spend time on it again in four weeks. Fifth commandment then. And now we are changing gears from... Focusing on you know vertical to horizontal, right? We're changing gears. This is the second set. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And it specifically says, honor your father and your mother. And so this is about the sanctity of family, but not just the sanctity of family, it's the sanctity of governance. Like proper, God-ordained um, authority and submission. Both of these, like those can be abused. All authority can be abused. But that does not mean that authority is bad. We think it is, rebel, I'm going to, you know. But authority is a gift from God. God is in authority over us. And he gives order to society through authority. And so this command here is about, you know, the sanctity of governance. And it extends to relationships between God and the believer, the state, the government, and the citizen, elders and the congregation. Husbands and wives, parents and children, employers and employees. You are to submit to God-ordained authority unless that authority is asking you to sin. Then you're free from that. And so kids, listen to me for a minute. We're going to focus in on you for just a second. It is God's will for your good... That you honor your mother and father. And when you are little, what that, like when you are within, and not just little, when you live in your mama and daddy's house, I don't care if you're 26, if you live with your mama and daddy, the way you honor them is you obey them. You want to not obey them? Get out. Once you do get out, that honoring them through obedience is gone you're not called to do that anymore but the call to respect and honor that has no expiration date on it and so that means like as our parents age and they're in difficult living situations we honor them we respect them they cared for us when we were feeble and young we care for them when they are feeble and old. Honor your mother and your father. No expiration date. Number six, don't murder. Right? So if we're talking about sanctity of different things, this is the sanctity of life. That all of life is valuable and and has dignity because all human life is made in the image of God. And so it's a call, we talk about this all the time, to have a consistent life ethic, the valuing of all human life. And so we can't be like, babies need our assistance to be born because they're made in the image of God, but immigrants and sojourners and refugees don't need our assistance to live because I guess they're like not made in the image of God. All people are made in the image of God and therefore have inherent worth and value and dignity in our need of aid from the church particularly. We're to value all human life and that's why Jesus applies this also to anger. The book of Proverbs applies it also to demeaning people, looking down, making fun of. All that's addressed here. This is a big file cabinet. Number six is a big file cabinet, and number seven is a big file cabinet too. Number seven is a big old file cabinet. It's not just about adultery. Jesus expands it to include lust, but it includes so many other things as well. Again, it's kind of a category. And so it's all about the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of sex. And and notice, it presupposes you shall not commit adultery. It presupposes the God-ordained design of marriage one man one woman for life it presupposes that and so the commandment then touches on like trying to redefine marriage and any sexual activity outside of marriage whether that's homosexuality or heterosexuality like all homosexuality is sin and all heterosexual sexuality outside of marriage is sin And we treat one of them like a problem and the other one like a plague. Both of them are problems with the same answer, Christ. And we need to apply the law that then drives us to the gospel. We need a Savior that then drives us back to the law for God's glory and our own joy. And so, as I've said so many times, when God says sex works this way, that is not Him trying to keep you from things. That is Him trying to lead you into joy. Trust Him. And just kind of on that note, let me just throw this out there. I put this in your uh, sermon resources at the bottom. I put a book down there. It's ten questions that every teen should ask and answer. I just picked this up. I'm reading through it myself. I've already ordered it for uh, my teenage girls. Um, and it asks questions. I mean, there's some apologetic things in there, like how can we trust the Bible and whatnot, but it also asks some very like contemporary questions, like why can't love just be love? You know, So what if I want to be a girl? Good question. So I'd encourage you, like those of you who have you know, teenagers, pick that up, read through that this summer. They don't have much reading to do. Read through that this summer and talk through those things. Disciple your children. All right? That's the seventh commandment. Let's keep going, Law Substance, looking at number 8, verse 15, do not steal. This is about the sanctity of property. And so if you've taken like a Crown Financial or a Ramsey Financial Peace University type deal, you will understand that you don't own anything. God owns everything. Everything on the planet is God's. You and I, we are just stewards of His stuff. That's how you approach your finances. That's how you approach your possessions. You remember it is God's. It's not mine. And I am just a steward whatever He's entrusted to me and steward whatever He's entrusted to me well. And so when you remember that, then stealing becomes not just stealing from someone or someone stealing from you, but stealing from God. That's who you're really stealing from. And so don't steal. And this isn't just like don't have a bank heist, right? Right? It's not just that, but it's also like don't steal answers on a test. Don't cheat on your taxes. Don't take credit for what is someone else's. Don't waste your employer's time because you're stealing from them. All right? Ninth commandment. Keep going here. This commandment addresses the sanctity of truth, the sanctity of truth. And there are a lot of ways to apply this one, but I'm going to be very, like specific to the time. Social media. There is so much bearing of false witness on social media, and we should absolutely expect this from the world. Why should they not? They're not Christians? You don't have God telling them, you know, you should do this or shouldn't do that. You should totally expect that from non believers. But as Christians, we are to be different. We're not to do that. And so, under God, sharing falsity on Facebook is a sin. It's a lie. You're lying, you're bearing false witness. And so unless like you have researched the hilt out of something and and research it's truly not just finding that one rogue person who agrees with you, that one, you know, wacko that agrees with you on something and then putting that out there like it's truth, unless you've done real research, balanced research, don't share it. And then even if you have and you know, it's certifiable, but it's Shared in a mean-spirited, demeaning, unkind, like owning the libs kind of way. No, don't share it. Because that's not becoming of a Christian. We're not to own people. We're to be gentle and kind and humble and contend with. Like no one's ever been argued out of their position on Facebook. You realize that. It doesn't happen. All it does is entrench people more. And people, you know, I mean, you know the algorithms, they work and they put you in your own little echo chamber. You share that and a friend who has their own little echo chamber and they've never heard anything outside of it, sees that and like, that guy's insane. You see someone post something and you're in your echo chamber, you've never seen anything outside of it, and you think, that person's insane. Like it doesn't, it's not helpful. If you want to have a dialogue, get across the table from someone and talk. Help me understand. Why would you believe that? That's how you dialogue. That's how, that's how adults, that's how Christians dialogue. And so we are to be truth tellers, truth speakers, not falsity spreaders of propaganda groups, whether that's QAnon, which is a bad thing, or Black Lives Matter, which is a good statement, bad organization, anti-gospel, both of them. And so we need to remember always, we are sojourners, we are outsiders, we aren't to be like the world, so we will not, should not desire even to fit the mold of donkey or elephant that the world tries to put us into. Our mold is a lamb, which puts us outside of everybody. And we want to be made and molded more and more and more and more into the image of the lamb, hence our need for the law, which is our divine guide for life. here's what a life-pleasing to God looks like. And then the last one, number 10, this one really deals with motive. right? The idea of coveting. Like, why do you do what you do? Like again, if you're sharing something, what's your motive in sharing it? But then just bigger than that, God is very much concerned with why we do what we do. Not just what we do. Like, why do you do that? Like you're kind to someone, you do something good, you do a good deed. Is that because you love God and you love your neighbor, that's because, well, someone's going to see me do this and they're going to say something nice to me or I'm going to get a kickback from it in some way. Like, what? God's concerned with why we do. He's concerned with our motivation. This is the substance of the wall and all He did is scratch the surface. But we're called to love God and we're called to love others and whatever people may say about us, they say about us. That's our calling. Love God, love others, and God is serious about it. So serious, look at verse eighteen. And this is number four, the wall of seriousness. Verse eighteen. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you that you may not Sin And so, notice this, it is the fear of God that is to motivate them to not sin. Like, one of the things we need to maybe recover as the church today is that God is terrifying in His holiness and power. Like, we so want to not think about that, that we want to like treat Him like, like the abominable snowman, and we yank His teeth out and He becomes a humble bumble. That's, that's, but God is terrifying in His power, and blazing holiness. And it's good for us to have a right fear before Him. And so, for example, I I don't want to be a helicopter parent, right? I hope none of y'all want to be a helicopter parent. Your kids need to fall down, cut their knees, rub some dirt on it. They're going to be all right. It's good for them. But nevertheless, when we go to my parents' house, the road that I grew up on has become a highway now, and people the speed limit's 55. Now, they live in Georgia, so that means 55 is meaningless. Like They all think that they're NASCAR drivers. And so that's meaningless. And so it, since the kids were little, every time we go down there, I want them to under, like, have a healthy fear of that. Don't you go near the road. You can die. I want them to have that healthy fear. I'm teaching my kids to drive. I want them to have a healthy fear of driving. Not, 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 not paralyzed, like where they can't make a quick decision. I don't want them to be so fearful that they won't you know put the accelerator on the floor when they need to. But I want them to understand, like, yeah, this is a great blessing, but it can kill you. And it can kill other people. The number one cause of teenager deaths is traffic accidents. I want them to understand that and have that healthy fear and then drive accordingly. And it's the same thing with God. He is almighty, blazing in His holiness and glory and power. And so in His presence, the mountain is shaking. The people are shaking and are afraid. And God never once here tries to alleviate them of that fear. Moses says, don't be scared that He's going to kill you right now, but that fear that you have right now, that reverential awe of, oh my goodness, He could take me out if He wants to, that is proper and and right, and it is that fear of Him that it may be before you that you may not sin. That's why like this idea of reverence and fear of God, that's why Solomon opens up the Proverbs with, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Like You've got to start there. And then at the end of his life, the end of Ecclesiastes, after he's tried everything under the sun to find satisfaction and meaning and purpose, he's tried it all. And he's chased it down with all of his wealth to the nth degree. He comes to the end of his life in his memoirs and he writes, the end of the matter is this, all has been heard, like he's tried everything. And his final statement. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of mankind. And so, like, do you want to be wise? Do you want to have knowledge? Fear the Lord. Do you want to walk in gratitude? Walk, live your life in joy and not in guilt? Follow His commandments. Like He's for you. They are the path of life. It's not something like you're trying to merit something with God. He's saying, child, I love you. Here's the way to live. Here's the way to pursue. And so the wall is serious. But make sure you don't misunderstand. It is the path of life for your joy. God has that for you. And He wants us to worship Him through obedience. Love Him and love others with the whole goal of the wall. Like the whole goal is is, is that it would not remain just something external that we look at, but is something that would become internal to us. Now with the coming of Jesus, trusting Him by faith, being sealed with the Holy Spirit, the wall would be, number five in your notes, written on our heart. The law written on our hearts. And so listen to the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 31, he writes this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand... Here we go, listen to this. Exodus. To bring them out of the land of Egypt... My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so this is the goal of the law for us today. That it moves from just something external to something internal. That it's been written on our hearts. In other words, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of us producing the internal reality of the wall. And what is the internal reality of the wall produced by the Holy Spirit? It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Gentleness and self control. This is the goal of the wall that it would produce this in us. Not just as like an external list to keep, but an internal reality to strive after and live out. Like Alistair Begg says on his radio show, the learning is for the living. It's not just for the learning, it's for the living. And so this idea of the wall and how we live it out is kind of like a story I heard of a girl who was taking a really difficult, maybe it's an AP lit class or something like that, but a really hard lit class and she's failing it. She's absolutely failing it. So she's like, I need to get out of this. I need to transfer. I need to take a regular class and then I'll be good to go. And so she's talking to her teacher about this and the teacher's like, well, what if I gave you an A at the beginning of the class? I just go ahead and give you an A. Would you take the class? And so the girl's not, you know, a dummy. She's like, well, I mean, who wouldn't take that deal, right? So she's like, yeah, absolutely, I'll, I'll, I'll take that deal. And she's like, all right, good. You've got an A. You already have an A, so go to class. Friends, that is how it is with us and what Christ has done for us. Like, you, if you are in Christ, you already have an A. You already have His righteousness given to you imputed to you you didn't earn it he's credited it to your account and so like the threat of failure and judgment and condemnation has been removed like we're in forever it can't be taken away and nothing we can do now will make our grade better or make our grade worse. Nothing we can do now can make God love us more or love us less because God's love for us isn't based upon us. It's based upon Christ. And the Father can't love Christ more or less than He does right now. And we're in Christ. So we can't vacillate. It's constant. And so knowing that, knowing the Word's approval of you Knowing that it's not determined by your performance, it's by Jesus' performance, that will make you perform now more and better, not less and worse. And so in other words, grace mobilizes performance. Performance does not mobilize grace. And so allow grace to be your mobilization. Allow God's love to be your mobilization and motivation because He's for you. His law is for your good. It's the path of life, of joy, of purpose, of meaning. And so run after him in obedience. Not like you've been freed from sin to pursue the law. Not because you have to keep it, but because it's the path of life. Uh, Tim Keller kind of ties a bow on this really well when he says this. Religion is. If you obey, then you will be accepted. But the Gospel is, if you are absolutely accepted, and sure you're accepted, only then will you ever begin to obey. And those are two utterly different things, and every page of the Bible shows the difference. May every member of this church show the difference. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Remembering that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, and more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And moreover by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward let's pray Father thank you that we do not have to keep the law to merit your love Jesus kept the law for us our great substitute and now the law has been transferred to a guide for life the path of joy the path of life for Your glory and our good, because those two things always go together. Our ultimate good. And so, Father, help us to trust You enough to follow You. To follow Your Word. To let Scripture be our sole authority and guide. To live a life in such a way. I mean, we just stake it all on you. Empower us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to live this way for your glory and our good out of love for you that then therefore necessarily drives love of neighbor. In Christ's name, amen.